0: Alright, good, good, good morning. Turn to 1 Peter 3, please. We're going to start by just reading our verses this morning. And just reading them will make you much more fervent in prayer for me and for all of us this morning. 1 Peter 3, 17 through 22. It's okay if and when you are confused. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So just five verses, but what in the world? Um, we're here to, to study these verses. This is one of those. This is just one of those passages that there's a lot of views on. I won't even tell you all of the views on it because there's too many. Um, I'll I'll walk you through it, hopefully in a way that makes sense to me. As always, be a Berean, and um, I would encourage you to remember that God wants to be understood. He's not making himself confusing. To us, intentionally, and you don't need any kind of degree or advanced education to understand verses like these. They are understandable. It's really hard, but they're understandable. Most of the worst ideas in the world about the Bible came from people who had advanced educational degrees. (laughs) Which I'm not against. I'm not against it's a dream. It's one of Joe and I's uh, bucket list dreams to go to seminary and spend more time studying the word. So not against studying the word, against the exaltation of formal education, which you don't need. You don't need to understand these. So it's not easy, but pay attention, have your wits about you, and uh, and we'll be okay. We'll be okay. I'm going to um, read from other verses in the Bible, throughout the sermon, you don't have to turn to those verses. Um, I'll read them for you, and I'd prefer if you just listened to um, listen to them as I read. As I read, hopefully it'll be it'll be helpful to you. This is a passage about victory. So many of those songs were perfect. In fact, I think the word "victory" was in at least three of them. This is a passage about victory, and one of the goals as we look at it is to not lose the forest for the trees um, as it were, all the little things that are confusing and you have to make decisions about can end up being a distraction from the clear main point. The main point is not is not confusing or unclear at all that this is about victory, victory in Christ and because of what Christ has done for us so I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read the verses again, and then we're going to start walking through the verses, and we'll be reminded of the context and and Peter and who he is and why he's writing this letter, um, and we'll, we'll hope the Lord blesses us. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given all of us to study your word. Think of the resources we have, uh, the Bible written down, the Bible written down in our language. Uh, friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ throughout history who've written their thoughts down about it which help us that we're here in community and can sit under the word together and help one another understand it. I pray that you'd be with us this morning as always we ask that anything that I say or our teachers downstairs with the kids anything that is said that is not not true or not helpful, would be soon forgotten, but that the truth, as it is correctly explained, would stick, and it would convict and challenge us and and encourage us and build us up. I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us, Lord. It's a comfort that the Holy Spirit who was there and made Peter write these words is here with us in this room. And we pray that he would make his message clear to us, Father, that... That we would be helped in this way. The same for our teachers downstairs teaching our kiddos. We ask these things in Christ's name because he's risen from the dead. Amen. The Sunday school teachers downstairs are teaching on the Trinity this morning to our first through eighth graders. So baptism of Jesus, which is, uh, where, where we put in explicit teaching on the Trinity. So it's just one of those weeks We're just praying as we, as we jump into this truth. Okay. Again. 1 Peter 3:17 through 22. I'll probably throw in a few comments here and there as we read through, but uh, let's try to get a sense of these verses again. The first one is our connecting verse. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil, which is a connection to lots of what has come before in chapter 2 and chapter 3. For Christ is our example. He suffered once for sins The righteous for the unrighteous. That is to say, he suffered for doing good. He was righteous. That he might bring us to God. It's all great until this next phrase. Things start getting dicey. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then, once made alive in the spirit, in that form, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, just eight people, were brought safely through water. Baptism corresponds to this and now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then this great ending verse of victory, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Not judged yet, but subjected to him. So, as you read verse 17 in the first part of verse 18, you're reminded of the, the general context, which is that Peter is writing this letter, this letter of care to believers spread out In different locations who are facing persecution. It appears persecution to the extent of death for some of them. The kinds of persecutions that are mentioned seem to imply that some are even being killed. Some are even being killed. So certainly social persecution, economic persecution, and physical persecution for being Christians. And in those trials, Peter writes this letter. So it's a letter about what to do when you suffer, but it's not suffering because of life circumstances or suffering because of tragedy. It's suffering because you're a Christian. It's that kind of suffering. And in chapters 2 and 3, you remember Peter's gone through all these different Spheres of life where it appears, it's pretty clear, our approach to persecution is not to fight back. It's to take the reviling and the persecution and submit to it. To allow ourselves to suffer, if you will. And Christ is our example at the end of chapter 2. He was reviled and did not revile in return. So, We have to submit to governing authorities and to our masters and wives to our husbands and to each other. And in all these things, it might be painful. Peter, in fact, assumes it's painful and says, even even when it is, we submit. We face the suffering. And because Christ faced the suffering, that's what verse 17 does. It says it's better to suffer for doing good. That is, don't give... Don't give your bosses or your, or your governments a valid reason for putting you in prison. Right? If you murder somebody, you should be in prison. Don't go to prison for that. Don't let your, if if your boss treats you with injustice, don't punch him back because then you can be fired justly. You should be fired if you punch back. Don't suffer for that. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's just a rehash of, of this theme that's been developed. And then, verse 18, we get Christ as the example. And it, He's an example of suffering, but it's also a reminder that He suffered uniquely. We suffer like He suffered, but He suffered in a way that none of us will suffer. He suffered once for sins, a once-for-all payment. We didn't suffer to pay for the sins of the world, or we won't suffer to pay for the sins of the world. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. We are to suffer for doing good, and in that way, we're like Christ. If We suffer for doing good. But Christ is in a league of His own in that He was perfectly righteous, perfectly righteous, and suffered for unrighteous people. With the purpose that he might bring us to God, bring us back to God. The bridge between a righteous God and unrighteous people is created through a righteous man who is God and can, can create the bridge. He brings us to God. And then the end of verse 18, the first interesting couple of phrases. In Christ's death and resurrection, I would argue, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So you have these two things compared. There's a, the, the common understanding of this for a long time in church history was that when Christ died, what this means is that his body died, but his spirit or his soul or whatever you want to call it lived on. Okay, that was common understanding. It's not the common understanding anymore and it doesn't, it doesn't really fit. It doesn't really fit. Um, the phrases here, okay? He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Put to death in the flesh is pretty self-explanatory. He was put to death here on earth. The word for flesh is the word for things in the earthly sphere. It doesn't always mean bad things. just means earthly things, fleshly things, physical things here. And Christ came into this world, took on that earthy experience, and was put to death here. He was put to death in, in the sphere of the flesh, if you will. But, but he was made alive in the spirit. In the spirit. And then in verse 19 it says, whatever this phrase means, made alive in the spirit, whatever that did to Jesus. After that happened, he went in that form to this prison somewhere to preach to these prisoners. Something. Okay? So, that's, that's how this works. Christ died, and then he was made alive in the spirit, and after being made alive in the spirit, he went someplace to proclaim something. Okay? Now, I think made alive in the spirit is not just a reference to the immaterial part of Jesus that, that lived on, if you will, when he died. I think it's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. His whole person was made alive three days after he died. He died as a whole person. Okay? Jesus is not two halves put together, and when he died, they were taken back apart. It's not how it works. He wasn't 50% physical and 50% spiritual, and this part died and this part didn't. He's a person. He's one person. He's fully man and he's fully God. He's not 50% of each. And the person died. And the person was dead for three days. Okay? And then at... Now, death doesn't mean he ceased to exist. You understand? That's not what we believe death is. None of us are going to cease to exist when we die. Not even unbelievers are going to cease to exist when they die. It's not what death is. Death is a separating of our person. In a way that we were never meant to be separated, God did not create people and plan on our physical and non-physical parts being rent in two. This is never the plan. We are a person. We're not supposed to be torn apart. But that's what death is. Is the significance of death, okay? And the significant significance of Christ experiencing death is that He experienced that rendering. That we must experience, and he was dead for three days. After three days, he's made alive in the Spirit. His whole person is made alive in the Spirit, and in a way that he was not made alive in the Spirit while he was on earth. Okay? So in other words, it's not that he went back to being the kind of human he was while, before he died. He's made alive in a new and different way. We see hints of this when we read about what Jesus did after he was raised from the dead. He's still a person that people can see and touch. And he eats breakfast on the beach, remember? So his body is still there, but he also walks through walls and floats up into heaven. And he's not going to die again. His body is not going to die again. Uh, a good cross-reference to this. Listen to these verses in 1 Corinthians 15, which is our resurrection chapter. I'm gonna to read to you verses that talk about our ultimate resurrection. We're, wh- whatever it is, is described here that I'm describing to you, we will get to experience. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, there's this comparison between earthy things and heavenly things, and Adam is kind of The prime example of an earthly man, and Christ is the prime example of a, of a heavenly person. The first man is from the earth. Earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, love that the word earthy is in the Bible, earthy, so also are those who are earthy, which means we're like Adam. Adam was earthy, we're like Adam, we're earthy. And as is the heavenly, So also are those who are heavenly. That's even better news. Just as we have been born in the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed. When we're raised from the dead... When Christ returns will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. So, Lazarus was raised from the dead, yes, he was not raised imperishable. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, she was not raised imperishable. They were raised right back to their perishable earthly existence, Their bodies kept on decaying, and then they died again. Okay? When Christ was raised, he was not raised back to his previous earthly life. Christ had a body that was decaying, like ours does. His 33 years on the earth, all the ailments of aging on his body, he experienced. When he was raised from the dead, he did not experience that anymore. He was raised imperishable. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. That is the first one to be raised that way. And we're going to be raised that way too eventually. Okay. So all that to say, this phrase is important because it kind of helps with the rest of passage. He was put to death in his earthy experience, but then three days later, he was made alive in the spirit. He's a resurrected Christ, imperishable, incorruptible, never to die again. And in that form, verse 19, in that form, he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison. This weird event. This weird, weird, weird event. Okay? It's actually like the most boss move ever. So you think about it. Okay? But if you take this phrase. He went... So the questions are, he went to a place. What's the place? He went to preach. What did he preach? And he preached it to... Beings. Who did he preach it to? Okay? So, start with who he's preaching to. These spirits in prison. There's good reason, I think, to believe these are fallen spirits. These are angelic beings, not the spirits of humans. The reason I think that is because... That word is used in that way the vast majority of the time it's used in the New Testament and in writings of the day. So when Peter's listeners see that word, it almost always means not the spirits of dead people, but fallen angels. Okay? More than that, we we get clues. These spirits formerly did not obey, verse 20. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, verse 20. So these spirits in the days of Noah were disobedient, which makes us think, might make you think back to this also very weird passage. In Genesis 6, I'll read to you these verses. This is the beginning of the flood account. You remember the earth was in really bad shape. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God, that's these spirits, I think, they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. This is jacked up. Somehow these, these demons took on some human form. I don't know, possessed men, possessed human men, don't know. Had sex with all these earthly women. The Lord says, verse three, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. He's also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So as jacked up as it is, these women get pregnant and have these weird kids. Don't know what they are, what they look like exactly. I mean, ideas the the creative imagination of scholars has run wild with this, what exactly they look like, but it's pretty jacked up. It's pretty jacked up, and it's presented here as kind of the peak of evil before God judges the world with the flood, right? He says, it's almost as if this is the last straw, right? And God says, no more, says he's sorry, he decides to, to judge the earth. So, so, for that reason, because we have these, these signals in verse 20 that these spirits didn't obey in the days of Noah uh that makes it sound like this is a good fit and the the audience at the time we think had a really strong knowledge of this story and when they hear this this is this is what they would have thought those spirits those spirits are in a prison somewhere apparently okay there are hints of this in second peter and in jude let me read these couple quick verses Second Peter talks about God not sparing angels when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. He put some fallen angels in a place for them to stay there until judgment day comes. In Jude, a a very similar verse, um, angels who did not keep their own domain, that fits, fallen angels coming down to earth, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So we have these hints. Nowhere does it explicitly say this is exactly who we're talking about. But it seems like these are the spirits that Peter's talking about here. And they're waiting in a prison for judgment. Now, this is sanctified imagination. You just imagine Christ goes to preach to them in his resurrected body. So I'm thinking, if you're these fallen, these fallen spirits, you're held in this prison. um, You hear that Jesus dies. This is good news. Not the way we say, not the way we say it's good news. It's good news because even though they're in prison, that's a good thing for their team. You understand that Jesus, who is supposed to be the Messiah, has died. No one expected that to happen, not even Christ's followers. They get word of this perhaps, a little bit excited perhaps, maybe having a party in their prison for two or three days perhaps, and then who shows up? Christ in this made alive in the spirit, resurrected body to say, to say what? The deal's sealed. The deal is sealed. It's over. It's over. He doesn't judge them at that moment. They're still awaiting judgment, but they're probably a lot more depressed about it now than they were before Christ went and proclaimed to them. So, I think that's what happened. There's a common view that Jesus went to preach to these spirits in between his death and resurrection, which doesn't make sense to me for a whole bunch of reasons. The main reason being, what is he preaching to them? The gospel is what? Not that Jesus lived a sinless life and died for our sins. It's those things and that He rose from the dead. The gospel, if the gospel is those three parts, He lived a sinless life, He died to pay for our sins, and He rose from the dead, it's not like if you take one of those away, you still have two thirds of it. This is not how it works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you take any one of those parts away and you go from full gospel to meaningless, worthless information. what Paul says, he says, if Paul literally says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain. So I don't see Christ going to proclaim victory until after he's raised from the dead. Right? Because it hasn't happened yet. Christ didn't have victory before he was raised from the dead. He had it when he was raised from the dead. So, that's why I think that's what happened there. It's awesome. I think. So, so Christ suffered for doing good, like Peter's readers are suffering. But in a unique way, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, rose from the dead... Did this verse 19 boss move? Went to the, went to this prison at some point. I don't know when. On his way up to heaven maybe. At some point as he was walking around when he was resurrected. He went, he preached to them. Verse 20 kind of moves from that event to Peter, Peter makes it about his readers. And we get this other confusing thing about baptism. So, they formerly did not obey those spirits when God's patience waited in the days of, in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, and then he, and then he points out that at this time, just a few, in that ark, just a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through water. Which I think his readers hear, and they're like, oh yeah. There were just a few people back then, right? Like, you think you're being persecuted or you're living in a culture that's against you? There were literally Eight people in Noah's day who were even trying to do what's right. Eight people. So sometimes it's hard to let your kids play with the neighbor. Let our girls play with the neighbor the other day. Neighbor boy pulled his pants down, moon the girls <laughs> from across the hill. I don't have a sermon on how to handle that yet, but it happens. It happens. Oh, it made for good. It made for good conversation later. It was just one of those things. It's like, you know, a two-year-old boy, it's like, this is life. We're we're not going to never let him go out of the house again. I know that's not what we can do, right? So as hard as it is for us to work through these things, Noah and his family, it appears, could not... I mean, I don't know what it was like to be one of only eight on the earth who was honoring God. So Peter says to his readers who are a persecuted minority and facing persecution and probably feeling like the whole world is against them. You remember this one time there was Noah. Only eight people were living for God then. But end of verse 20, they were brought safely through water or they were saved through water. That is God took care of them. He saved them from that circumstance. We just read in our small group this, this passage in 2 Peter. Um, if I can find it here. I'm just going to read you this one verse. It talks about all these instances when God saved people out of tough times. And it ends by saying this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment. For the day of judgment, after listing all these examples, Noah is in that list of a righteous person living in an unrighteous time. The Lord knows how to deal with these situations. He saved Noah and his family through water. And then, and Peter takes that picture or image and brings it to bear on Peter's readers, he says this crazy confusing thing in verse 21. Now, the translations are absolutely all over the place on this. So, you're pro- many of you are probably distracted by how it sounds different in your Bible, perhaps. Baptist, mine says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So, whatever it was Peter was saying about Noah and how his family was saved, he's saying, baptism, water baptism is what does that for Peter's readers in their day? Okay? Now, as we've said before, when you see words like save or "saved," first question is, what are they being saved from? Okay? Don't jump to the knee-jerk, this is eternal salvation for sins, which we are confident is by faith alone, right? That's why we read this verse and say, what in the world? Baptism saves you? We say all the time, baptism doesn't set every baptism. We say this isn't what is saving this person. Their faith in Christ is what saves them. But in some sense, in some sense, it saves. So how is it that Noah and his family were saved through water? Well, I take it to mean his family was saved from the culture around them, out from all the persecution Godlessness, wickedness, God saved them out of that, how? Through water. Water came and judged all of it. You could say they're saved from God's judgment, through water, right? Water is the thing that lifted that boat out of destruction. They were saved from their circumstance. And now, Peter says, here's how I would take it, just like... Noah and his family were saved out of that culture through water. You are saved out of your culture and out of God's judgment through baptism, through the water of baptism. And then he has this qualifier, not as the removal of dirt from the body. Okay, i.e., there's nothing special about the fact that the water is getting dirt off of your body. It's not the physical act that that. Literally saves you in the same way, like who saved Noah? We don't, we don't praise the ark for saving Noah or the rain for saving Noah. God saved Noah. Right? But as a picture, they're saved through water. As a picture, baptism, though it itself doesn't save you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. So we have this symbol. This symbol struggle. Symbols are difficult. We have a few symbols in the New Testament for the church. I could think of four. I didn't, I didn't look through the whole New Testament. The four that come to mind are head coverings, the juice, the cup, the bread, and baptism. Maybe there are others. Certainly those are biggies, right? And with baptism, I, we have the biggest struggle with baptism because we want to be super careful to communicate that the act of baptism doesn't somehow magically save you. I mean, if honestly, if that were the case, all we'd have to do is grab people and them, and they'd be saved, right? It'd be too easy. It'd be too I mean, that is what people put their trust in, though, right? I mean, in, in various denominations, my baby was baptized, so I guess they're good to go. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. At the same time, you can't discount the symbol, right? We sometimes say things like well the symbol isn't re- it doesn't really matter what matters is what the symbol represents. I know I know what you mean but that's not true, right? God could have just said Christ could have just said remember me. Remember my body broken and remember my blood shed, but that's not what he said. He said take bread and remember me and drink the cup and remember me. He tells us to use those symbols. So you can't just throw it out, right? On top of that, on top of that, for first century Christians, baptism and faith in Christ were much more like the same thing. We we have maybe de-emphasized baptism to the extent that we put it off. Not really a big deal. All that matters is faith, right? Well, no, that's not all that matters. It appears this symbol is really, really important to God. Just like if Lev said, uh, Joy visited a church and we took communion last Sunday. I would never fathom that he meant he took communion without the symbols. If he said, I took communion, I wouldn't say, well, did you take the bread and cup? He'd say, what do you mean? I said, I took communion. Of course I took the bread and cup. That's what it means, right? But is there anything special about the bread and cup? No, of course not. But they go together. We don't ever separate them, Right? For the first century readers, I think baptism and salvation was that way. So, if Kevin said if I said to Kevin, Kevin, when'd you when did you come to faith in Christ? And he says, November of ninety-eight, right? I would maybe later on ask, have you ever been baptized? Because to us they're not necessarily one and the same thing. In the first century, if I say, Kevin, when'd you come to faith in Christ? And he says, November of eighty-four. If I later asked him, so when did you get baptized? He'd say, I told you I came to faith in Christ in November of 84. Of course, that's when I got baptized. Like, like we view these symbols more so. Does that make sense? So, so when Peter, when Peter says baptism saves us, we freak out, which is good. We should freak because it makes us study what he actually means. His readers would not have freaked out about this. I don't think. I don't think. Says... In Noah's day, water separated Noah from his culture. In Peter's day and in our day, water separates us from our culture. When someone is baptized, it means a whole lot of things. It's identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection. You go down into waters and if you're left there, you will die. You will die in the water. This is why it's such a good picture. It's a little bit terrifying, to be honest. Um, But that's why we do it, right? If you were left there, you'd die. But you're not left there. You come up out of the water. That's a significant meaning of the symbol. But it also is this thing, an appeal to God for a good conscience, the ESV says. It says a variety of things. To take that to mean... It's almost like a contract, right? This person is saying, I identify with Christ in his death and resurrection, but he's also saying, I'm committing to a certain kind of life. A certain kind of life. A life that is washed clean by this water. A life of loyalty. This is why traditionally we have a little back and forth before baptizing someone. We say... Uh, little Johnny, have you placed your faith in Christ as Savior? And we make little Johnny say, yes, I have. And then we say, okay, we baptize you. Historically, we think there is even more of a back and forth. More like you commit to this community. You commit to living a life cleansed from sin. Yes, I do. All right, here we go. All of this significance is wrapped up into it. So, when Kara two weeks ago or anyone gets baptized, they're saying to God and to the world, I am separating myself from the culture around me. And God, and I'm being saved, you understand, I'm being separated from that culture through this act. What it represents. Okay? So, that's what I think it means. The clear points being, That the symbol is not what saves a person, but also that you can't throw out the symbol. You just can't. It goes with the experience. Okay? Try to strike that balance, to hopefully, to some degree of success. Now, get to the end, and Peter puts the gas on what Christ has done again. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as if to say, Noah was saved through water. You're saved in water through baptism, but through the resurrection of Christ, if he wasn't raised, we're insane for dunking people in water. If he isn't raised, we should leave him in the water, right? Right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, we end with this emphasis on victory. And it's hard when we're just doing this paragraph, but think back on 1 Peter. Okay? Think about Peter. He's writing this letter. These These believers get this letter from Peter. Peter's the guy. And Peter says things like... You have to submit to authority. You remember what happened when the governing authorities came to get Christ? Peter's the guy who drew his sword and attacked. I don't know how, if it was like he whiffed it and just got the guy's ear or was aiming for his ear, I don't know. But he lunges at this guy. You're not gonna attack. Christ because he thought the way of, he thought victory was coming right now here on earth. He thought the way of Christ is the way of victory, physical victory. He later learned in life the way of Christ is victory, but it's victory through suffering. That's the way of Christ. Peter says things like, always be ready in your suffering to give an answer for the hope that is in you. I'm the reader. I'm thinking, well, Peter had an answer. To give a reason for the hope that was in him when Christ was on the cross and they gave him three chances to say, what's the hope that's within you? And he botched it all three times. It's just interesting that that man has learned from Christ and grown to the extent that he says, don't draw your sword. We're not those kinds of people. Christ could have drawn his sword and he didn't. He's our example. We're attacked unjustly. We don't draw our sword. Always be ready to give a hope that's in you. Subtext being, I learned that lesson really well. Guys, I had my chance. Don't miss the opportunity when you have it to tell people, I do follow that guy that you're killing and you hate. And here's why. Because he changed my life. That's the opportunity. All that to say, this challenging letter goes through. Submit, you're going to suffer. Don't be surprised when you suffer. Look to the future. And then this nice reprieve, which is, also don't forget, victory is coming. It is coming. In fact, I'll close with the, the last few verses of First Corinthians 15, which are amazing, which speak to almost the same exact thing Peter's talking about, which is that victory is coming. When this, I'm just picking up right where I finished last time, when this perishable will have put on imperishable, that is, when when Christ comes back, he's raising us all from the dead, we'll be made alive in the Spirit. This mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your... Stings. Interesting, that is a well-known truth at the time, Paul writes, but he says, as true as it is now, it will really be true then. So we say in tragedy, like the testimony of the Christian school in Nashville, if you've read about that, what a testimony. What a testimony that they say, we're sorrowful and brokenhearted, but Christ is raised from the dead. There is no sting in death. As true as that is for them and for us now, it will be more true when we're made alive in the Spirit and with Christ. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, this last verse, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. You can almost hear Peter saying these things to his readers. Though it's Paul here. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain, Paul says two paragraphs ago. Here he says, your toil, though it will feel at times like it is in vain, is not in vain through Christ. Because Christ has the victory. He has the victory. He had to suffer to get that victory. And because we have to follow Him and pick up our cross and follow Him, we have to suffer before we get the victory too. We have to suffer before we get the victory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Just ask again, as as so many of these tough things are maybe going through our minds about this passage, that... Um, The main point would be clear. Whether I made it clear or not, Father, help help what sticks to be the clear main point, which is that Christ has victory. Peter's readers suffer. We have suffered to some extent. Perhaps we'll suffer more like Peter's readers. And if and when that happens, give us the strength to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord to anticipate the victory that we get to share with him, the privilege it is to share in the sufferings of Christ and to share in the victory of Christ. Help us to have this mindset, and thank you for the encouragement that it is. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.